street on which Fat Charlie had grown up. It was a chestnut-coloured boxer, long-legged and pointy-eared, with a face that looked like the beast had, as a puppy, run the face first into a wall. Its head was raised, its tail nub erect. It was unmistakably an aristocrat amongst canines. It had entered dog shows. It had rosettes for best of breed and for best in class, and even one rosette marked best in show. This dog rejoiced in the name of Campbell's McInrory Arbuthnot Seventh, and its owners, when they were feeling familiar, called it Kai. This lasted until the day that Fat Charlie's father, sitting out on their dilapidated porch swing, sipping his beer, noticed the dog as it ambled back and forth across the neighbour's yard on a leash that ran from a palm tree to a fence post. "'Hell of a goofy dog,' said Fat Charlie's father. "'Like that friend of Donald Ducks. Hey, goofy!' And what once had been best in show suddenly slipped and shifted. For Fat Charlie, it was as if he saw the dog through his father's eyes. And darned if he wasn't a pretty goofy dog, all things considered. Almost rubbery. It didn't take long for the name to spread up and down the street. Campbell's McInrory Arbuthnot the Seventh's owners struggled with it, but they might as well have stood their ground and argued with a hurricane. Total strangers would pat the once-proud boxer's head and say, Hello, Goofy. <laughs> How's a boy? The dog's owners stopped entering him in dog shows soon after that. They didn't have the heart. Goofy-looking dog, said the judges. Fat Charlie's father's names for things stuck. That was just how it was. That was far from the worst thing about Fat Charlie's father. There had been, during the years that he was growing up, a number of candidates for the worst thing about Fat Charlie's father. His roving eye and equally his adventurous fingers, at least according to the young ladies of the area, who would complain to Fat Charlie's mother, and then there would be trouble. The little black cigarillos which he called cheroots, which he smoked, the smell of which clung to everything he touched. His fondness for a peculiar shuffling form of tap dancing, only ever fashionable, Fat Charlie suspected, for half an hour in Harlem in the 1920s. His total and invincible ignorance about current world affairs, combined with his apparent conviction that sitcoms were half-hour-long insights into the lives and struggles of real people. These, individually, as far as Fat Charlie was concerned, were none of them the worst thing about Fat Charlie's father, although each of them had contributed to the worst thing. The worst thing about Fat Charlie's father was simply this. He was embarrassing. Of course, everyone's parents were embarrassing. It goes with the territory. The nature of parents is to embarrass merely by existing, just as it is the nature of children of a certain age to cringe with embarrassment, shame and mortification should their parents so much as speak to them on the street. Fat Charlie's father, of course, had elevated this to an art form, and he rejoiced in it, just as he rejoiced in practical jokes. From the simple, Fat Charlie would never forget the first time he had climbed into an apple pie bed, to the unimaginably complex. Like what? asked Rosie, Fat Charlie's fiancée, one evening when Fat Charlie, who normally did not talk about his father, had attempted, stumblingly, to explain why he believed that simply inviting his father to their upcoming wedding would be a horrendously bad idea. They were in a small wine bar in South London at the time. Fat Charlie had long been of the opinion that 4,000 miles and the Atlantic Ocean were both good things to keep between himself and his father. Well, said Fat Charlie, and he remembered a parade of indignities each one of which made his toes curl involuntarily. He settled upon one of them. Well, when I changed schools, when I was a kid, my dad made a point of telling me how much he'd always look forward to President's Day when he was a boy, because it's the law that on President's Day, the kids who go to school dressed as their favourite presidents get a big bag of candy. 
Oh, that's a nice law," said Rosie. "I wish we had something like that in England." Rosie had never been out of the UK. If you didn't count a club 1830 holiday to an island in, she was fairly certain the Mediterranean. She had warm brown eyes and a good heart, even if geography was not her strongest suit. It's not a nice law," said Fat Charlie. "It's not a law at all. He made it up. Most states don't even have school on President's Day, and even for the ones that do, there is no tradition of going to school on President's Day dressed as your favourite president. Kids dressed as presidents do not get big bags of candy by an act of Congress, nor is your popularity in the years ahead, all through middle school and high school, decided entirely by which president you decided to dress as." The average kid dresses the obvious presidents, the Lincolns and Washingtons and Jeffersons, but the ones who would become popular, they dressed as John Quincy Adams or Warren Gamaliel Harding or someone like that. And it's bad luck to talk about it before the day, or rather, it isn't. But he said it was. Boys and girls dress up as presidents. Oh yes, boys and girls. So I spent the week before President's Day reading everything there was to read about presidents in the World Book Encyclopedia, trying to choose the right one. Didn't you ever suspect that he was pulling your leg? Fat Charlie shook his head. It's not something you think about. When my dad starts to work you over, he's the finest liar you'll ever meet. He's convincing. Rosie took a sip of her Chardonnay. So, which president did you go to school as? Taft. He was the twenty-seventh president. I wore a brown suit my father had found somewhere, with the legs all rolled up and a pillow stuffed down the front. I had a painted-on moustache. My dad took me to school himself that day. I walked in so proudly. The other kids just screamed and pointed, and somewhere in there, I locked myself in a cubicle in the boys' room and cried. They wouldn't let me go home to change. I went through the day like that. It was hell. You should have made something up," said Rosie. "You were going to a costume party afterwards, or something, or just tell them the truth." "Yeah," said Fat Charlie, meaningfully and gloomily remembering. "What did your dad say when he got home?" "Oh, he hooted with laughter." Chuckled and chortled and chittered and all that. Then he told me that maybe they didn't do that President's Day stuff anymore. Now why don't we go down to the beach together and look for mermaids? Look for mermaids? We'd go down to the beach and walk along it, and he'd be as embarrassing as any human being on the face of this planet has ever been. He'd start singing, and he'd start doing a shuffling sort of sand dance on the sand, and he'd just talk to people as he went, people he didn't even know, people he'd never met, and I hated it. Except he told me there were mermaids out there in the Atlantic, and if I looked fast enough and sharp enough, I'd see one. There, he'd say. Did you see her? She was a big old redhead with a green tail. And I looked and I looked, but I never did. He shook his head. Then he took a handful of mixed nuts from the bowl on the table and began to toss them into his mouth, chomping down on them as if each nut was a twenty-year-old indignity that could never be erased. Well, said Rosie brightly, I think he sounds lovely—a real character. We have to get him to come over for the wedding. He'd be the life and soul of the party. Which Fat Charlie explained after briefly choking on a Brazil nut was really the last thing you wanted at your wedding. After all, wasn't it your father turning up and being the life and soul of the party? He said that his father was, he had no doubt, still the most embarrassing person on God's green earth. He added that he was perfectly happy not to have seen the old goat for several years, and that the best thing his mother ever did was to leave his father and come to England to stay with her aunt Alana. He buttressed this by stating categorically that he was damned, double damned, and quite possibly even thrice damned if he was going to invite his father. In fact, said Fat Charlie in closing, the best thing about getting married was not having to invite his dad to their wedding. And then Fat Charlie saw the expression on Rosie's face and the icy glint in her normally friendly eyes. 
and he corrected himself hurriedly, explaining that he meant the second best, but it was already much too late. You'll just have to get used to the idea, said Rosie. After all, a wedding is a marvellous opportunity for mending fences and building bridges. It's your opportunity to show him that there are no hard feelings. But there are hard feelings, said Fat Charlie. Lots! Do you have an address for him? asked Rosie, or a phone number. You probably ought to phone him. A letter's a bit impersonal when your only son is getting married. You are his only son, aren't you? Does he have email? Yes, I'm his only son. I have no idea if he has email or not. Probably not, said Fat Charlie. Letters were good things, he thought. They could get lost in the post for a start. Well, you must have an address or a phone number. I don't, said Fat Charlie honestly. Maybe his father had moved away. He could have left Florida and gone somewhere they didn't have telephones or addresses. Well, said Rosie sharply, who does? Mrs. Higgler, said Fat Charlie, and all the fight went out of him. Rosie smiled sweetly. And who is Mrs. Higgler? she asked. Friend of the family, said Fat Charlie. When I was growing up, she used to live next door. He had spoken to Mrs. Higgler several years earlier, when his mother was dying. He had, at his mother's request, telephoned Mrs. Higgler to pass on the message to Fat Charlie's father and to tell him to get in touch. And several days later, there had been a message on Fat Charlie's answering machine, left while he was at work, in a voice that was unmistakably his father's, even if it did sound rather older and a little drunk. His father said that it was not a good time and that business affairs would be keeping him in America. And then he added that, for everything, Fat Charlie's mother was a damn fine woman. Several days later, a vase of assorted flowers had been delivered to the ward. Fat Charlie's mother had snorted when she read the card. <laughs> Things can get wrong me that easily, she said. He's got another thing coming. I can tell you that. But she had had the nurse put the flowers in a place of honour by her bed, and several times since.